LinkedIn presents. And all the way back at the end, they had tables where there were, you know, lunch trucks or food trucks or whatever. And they had some tables back there. And I went and I tried to find the furthest table where nobody could see me. And I sat down, I put my head in my hands and I just started crying mm. and a ball in there. And I was just so exhausted. You know what I mean? I was just exhausted emotionally. And this lady that works there, she kind of came through like an employee entrance of the back gate. So she kind of walked through back there. So she kind of messed up my little thing I had going on because I thought I was away from everybody. She came through the secret entrance and she ended up popping out right next to me. And she saw me. She was like an angel, man. You know, sometimes you feel like somebody just understands, you know, and and I think about that moment all the time because I'm so happy about how she handled that. I did not want to talk. I didn't want to tell her what was going on. I didn't want to have a conversation. All she did was she looked at me and she said, it's going to be okay, baby. And she just kept walking. And that's all I needed. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey, creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. This season, we are part of the LinkedIn Podcast Academy, so make sure to check out our show notes for information about our weekly newsletter and live events. In this conversation, I'm talking to Rain Mahdi, the owner of ZipFox and the true definition of a serial entrepreneur. This man has been creating and running businesses continuously since he was a kid, and it really doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. We talk about the strategic move that he made when he realized that something was missing from his business, how simplifying his business increased his revenue, and the challenges he's faced working with different cultures around the world. So I started by asking him about what I had previously thought was his first company, Hawk Packaging. Yeah, Hawk Packaging was my last business. I've done lots of stuff. Um, and it really just depends like how granular you want to get and how far back you want to go. You know, when I was uh, a kid, I started selling donuts in school and that was kind of my first bit of like, I can create some demand and I can sell some stuff. I was online when it used to be like AOL chat rooms and I was real big into skateboarding and I, and I loved all the skateboarding magazines. I used to rip the pages out and put them up on my walls and I started a skateboarding newsletter. I just went in the chat rooms and I started telling people that they could subscribe and my mom in a PO box. So I told them they could send their checks there. And next thing you know, we're going to pick up my mom's mail and there's checks in the mail. And I'm like, now I got to write a newsletter. <laughs> so I started sending a newsletter out. I think I only did it once or twice. Uh <laughs> And I dropped it because I realized the other part about entrepreneurship is you take people's money and then you have to do the work, you know, uh, <laughs> money. Um, so, so there was that. I started in uh, a little bit later on, like actually more kind of formal business. I started a clothing company that did pretty well. We were selling in a lot of retail outlets, selling direct to consumer. We got pretty popular, kind of like global presence. I mean, on a small scale, but I was happy with what we did there. Uh, I did an e-commerce business that was basically drop shipping stuff from China. And that was my first uh, foray into like working with uh, overseas suppliers, um, understanding international business. Uh, my dad kind of set me on that course. I came to him for, for some advice. There was a product that I wanted. It was basically Apple watches before there were Apple watches. I was like, I had seen these watches that look like G-Shocks and they were cell phones. And I'm like, you can't see, you can't find those anywhere. I wonder if I can buy those. And my dad, I was telling my dad about it and he goes, oh, well, you know, have you thought about looking in China? 
And everybody, you know, back then, everybody knew, oh, yeah, China makes all this stuff. But you'd never I had never really thought about actually leveraging that as like, maybe I can get stuff in China and sell it. It was just like mm. everything in China, but not like, wait a minute, that's an opportunity. So in that moment, it sounded like an opportunity to me. So I went looking for those watches. I found a website that was a bunch of suppliers in China. It wasn't Alibaba, but it was something similar. And um, and and I'm looking for the watches. I do find the watches. But then as I look into it deeper, I start realizing, wait a minute, there's some issues with compatibility with the carriers. And it's a little bit more complicated than just buying cell phone watches and selling them. They won't work with people's, you know, with T-Mobile and stuff. And a lot of the stuff was in Chinese, like the, de- you know, so was- <laughs> yeah, not many people are up on that. So that's yeah, not going to help yeah. here in America. The date in Chinese. So I'm like, maybe that's not a thing. But I found lots of other products on that same site that did seem like opportunities. And so I created this website, but I had zero money at the time. And I'm like, how am I going to put all these, pro- like, how am I going to sell all these products? And so what I did was I kind of invented, even though I didn't invent it, but for myself, I invented drop shipping. I go, wait a minute, they already have product photos. I can put those photos on my website. I can start selling them. I'll take the payment. When I get the payment, then I'll buy the stuff. I'll have them ship it directly. I never have to actually touch the product. This is genius. And it worked. It was pretty cool. And then I learned the other other thing about buying things in China is a lot of my stuff turned out to be counterfeit that I didn't realize uh, I was even selling brand name stuff. I just thought it was cool stuff, but you know, lo and behold, it was other stuff. So, so then, and this is important, right? And so then I shut that thing down and I had done, I had already done the hard part of creating a website, which back then wasn't so drag and drop as it is today. You didn't have Wix and these things that you do now. Um, so I'd already gone through the hard part of creating the website. I had done, gone through the harder part of creating demand and traffic to the site that would actually convert and people would order stuff. Um, but I panicked in that moment. Everybody that was left as an open order, I refunded their stuff because I didn't know what was going to be counterfeit, what was. And I was like, here's all your money back. And I shut it down. I was marketing that stuff to like military because my stepdad is uh, is an ex-Marine. I guess not an ex-Marine. You're never an ex-Marine. But my stepdad is a Marine. He's a retired Marine. And I lived on base for a while. So I understood that community. And something really cool about that community is once they think something is cool, they share it like crazy. You know, like if if one guy's into Uh, it or girl's into it, they go, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen this? So it's like viral within that community. So I go, that's a really good thing to kind of try to capture that in a bottle, right? So shutting that down was, in, in hindsight... A mistake because what I really could have done is said, okay, well, these products are risky or, or whatever's wrong with them. I've captured the interest of this community. What other products that aren't risky or messed up can I can I offer to them? And, mm-hmm. and you know, U.S. military based coffee mugs and T-shirts and whatever else I could have done. I could have captured that that I had started that momentum. But and also, they're going to see you as a trusted vendor because hey, you steered us away from something that wasn't trustworthy. Totally, totally. So I'm not, I'm, you know, so I, so I kind of, you know, I blew that opportunity, but that's fine. And then the next thing I started was, um, I started a coffee company, uh, like a coffee subscription company. It was like, you know, anytime you're getting into a saturated market, you want to have some sort of an angle. Otherwise it's going to be a real uphill battle that you may never, you know, mm-hmm. never make. So it was the most, is the most coffee, the most flow, whatever the tagline was, it was like the most co- flavors of coffee in the world or whatever. So we had a hundred different flavors of coffee. There was white chocolate raspberry, there was apple pie, there was chocolate hazelnut, there was all the blueberry muffin was amazing. I still dream about that. I got to get some more of that blueberry muffin for myself. So there were all these different coffee flavors. And, um, and, and, and we did, we got in like a local news thing. They did a promotion for us and all this stuff. 
So we start getting some subscriptions. It was working. People were subscribing. One lady, I remember one of our first subscribers, she subscribed, she got her first box. And then she's like, I love this so much. I'm going to do a second subscription for my mom. So she signed up another subscription. I was like, this is great. And we were like 40 bucks a month or whatever it was. But, you know, at that time, now I'm working a full-time job. I had ended up taking a job because I realized that all these different things that I tried out, there was some missing element. There was something because I hadn't worked a lot of jobs and there was just something that I didn't understand that I needed to see firsthand about how businesses operate. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew I didn't know something. Okay. Clip that. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, but I knew that there was something missing that I was like, if I don't figure this missing element out, I feel like everything I try is just going to get stuck, you know? And so I went and worked at this small juice company, a local juice company. Uh, my wife's dad was working there and I was like, hey, I man, give me a job. I'm looking for work. And so he got me a job there. And I started working closely with the owner. They were just getting started, but they had some obvious momentum. And next thing you know, I'm working side by side with the owner, helping him build this thing. And I'm doing everything from recreating the website, writing the copy, setting up the entire sales program from the beginning. I mean, renting the office, setting up the phone lines, doing all the hiring, managing everybody. I was even a kitchen manager. Like I was doing, and I'm a sales guy, you know, I was, <laughs> I was doing everything um, with him, rebranding everything. I got an opportunity to touch every aspect of that business and make a lot of the decisions and, and have a lot of wins. And I did kind of check those boxes and figure out what it was that I didn't know. And once I got to the end of that road where I realized, okay, I got what I needed to get from this place. Um, then I all of a sudden became extremely discontent with being there. I'm not a work a job person, but in the time that I was there, I was so gung ho. I was so happy to be there. It was so easy for me to be there. I worked so much without anybody asking me. And it's so funny how like the clock went off, the alarm went off and said, okay, that's enough. And all of a sudden I was like repulsed by the thought of being there one more day. I had to go. Um, not to mention the owner was like insane, you know, but <laughs> well, that doesn't help. Yeah, it doesn't help. But, but so but but you said you learned something out of that. Like, what was it that you took yeah. from that? Well, you know, I think a lot of it was just, I think it was organizational. Um, I think there were a lot of small lessons. I don't think that it was one big nugget. I mean, look, I worked on, um, I created a really effective cold email marketing campaign. I wrote all the emails. I figured out what didn't work, what did work. I started off with super long emails. They had everything you could ever want to know in one email, realized nobody's going to read that and cut it all the way down. And now people come to me for advice about how to write a cold email. I built Hawk Packaging with no other uh, marketing or outreach. We never spent a dollar on Google ads or any of that. It was all cold email. That's how good I got at that. And I realized a cold email really needs to be like one, two sentences, mm. very, very simple and easy to digest and just what needs to be in there. So, so that was one of the things. So like, I'm, it's a lot of little lessons like that, that I learned, um, how to manage people. You know, I hadn't managed lots of people before I did a lot of hiring there. I did a lot of firing. I did a lot of managing, um, that's I a really would. important one. And, and being able to do that on yeah. someone else's dime is a lot better than doing it on your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I never treated it like it was someone else's dime. I owned it. I treated it like it was mine. In fact, that's one of the things that kind of sucked about that situation is very early on, me and a couple other people were promised that if we kind of hit these milestones and helped him build this business to a certain point that we would get equity shares. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we hit that point. We didn't get there. And I thought that was impossible that that would ever happen because I would be so valuable to that business that there's no way he could screw me over like that. But he did. 
And that was another big lesson. I guess that's another lesson too that I realized and I've given that advice to other people. And if anybody's listening and they find themselves in a situation, I hope this can save you a lot of problems. If somebody makes you a promise about something that they're going to do for you at a later date, that can be put in writing. You don't have to wait until that moment happens and then get your contract. Write the contract right now that says, okay, when we get to this, then this happens and that's it. You know, but I didn't do that out of naivete and, you know, whatever. I trusted the guy. I thought he would trust me or or, or he would value me more than he apparently did. And uh, I could tell a really good story about that, but I won't go on that tangent. But anyway, so so when I got to the point that I realized I got enough out of that, you know, all those little lessons, then I said, okay, well, um, you know, I started having these thoughts and ideas. And it's funny because um, one idea that had come back to me a few times came to me again but in this moment it just really made sense and i was like yeah i'm gonna do that so that's when i had the idea about about hawk packaging one of the things that i did there uh was i was in charge of the purchasing and um i realized that you know they were buying all these things like uh sh- you know protein shaker bottles and these bags like thermal cooler bags and uh, little packaging uh little packaging envelopes for like protein shake stuff mm-hmm. and when I took, this is how all the dots, it's so weird how your different experiences all kind of connect. And so I was buying that stuff. And as it was coming in, I was seeing the boxes all saying made in China, made in China. And subconsciously it was registering in my head that we were buying from these US distributors, but everything was made in China. And then there was one time we were waiting on those little protein pouches to show up and they were late and we were stressing out because we needed them and we were about to run out. What are we going to do? And I called the company every day. And one day I called them and I called them so many times that they kind of started pulling back the curtains and telling me what was going on. They were like, hey, listen, uh-huh. We're waiting for the shipment to show up from China. It's still on the water. We're sorry. But as soon as it gets here, we're going to ship it and it'll be there to you. And what they told me was, that's the way I heard it was, we don't do anything to this product. There is no value add. We're going to bring it in. And as soon as we get it, we're going to ship it out to you and charge you more. He's the straight middle person. Yeah. You're doing nothing is what you just told me. And so for some reason, the light kind of went on at that moment. And I was like, hmm, okay. And so the first thing I did, it wasn't start the business. This is maybe a year before I left. So I said, hey, listen to the owner. I go, look, I've got some experience sourcing things from China. We're buying all this stuff from these US distributors. They're just buying it from China and marking it up. That doesn't make any sense. Let me find us a factory over there. Let me go direct and we can save a bunch of money. And he said, okay, if you can figure it out, go for it. So I used Alibaba. I used other sites like Global Sources. Um, I searched for months. I was scared to death. I was going to lose this guy's money. And finally I pulled the trigger on it, ended up getting lucky and getting a supplier who actually did ship the stuff and everything seemed pretty good. I was scared to death. And, you know, um, in hindsight, I really didn't have any protection, but it worked out. And in the course of that first year doing that, we saved a quarter of a million dollars. That's just right back to the bottom line. And this is for a small business, right? So that's that's huge. And, and the guy, you know, not even a, not a bonus, not a raise, not a, you know, uh, not even a barely an, an acknowledgement that that mm. happened. That was all my initiative That's crazy. come to me and say, hey, can you do this? It was all my idea. But that was an inspiration for me. When I think about that, I'm like so grateful that he didn't give me that little tiny percentage of equity in his little company or he didn't give me a raise or a big bonus because then I might have had these golden handcuffs where I just stayed yeah. there instead of leaving where I ended up creating a business that was worth more than his. So, you know, it it worked out in my favor. And it's funny how things work out like that. So eventually I I thought to myself, well, I know this packaging industry and I I know that people want to kind of the same thing as what I did for this guy. The thought was, 
if I was able to save this little company this much money because they didn't know how to source things from China, mm -hmm. I bet this is just one company. I bet if I called a thousand companies, little businesses, I could find other people who would also like to save money, but they don't know how to do it. And if I can save them a quarter of a million dollars, if I can even get 20% of that, you know, as a commission or whatever, I didn't really know what my business model would be at the time. Then um, I can make a good I can make a good living out of that. I can make either a lifestyle business or, or a pretty decent business out of that. We'll see. Um, and so I started working on that. So that's so then that became Hawk Sourcing. Hawk Sourcing was we will find anything that you need. Are you trying to buy pens? Are you trying to buy a mouse? Are you trying to buy uh, packaging, clothing, whatever it is that we think we might be able to get in China for you? Mm -hmm. We'll do that. And within the first year or so we started to realize that, wait, trying to play the middle between buyers and suppliers of all these different random goods is impossible because you think a pen is super simple, but then when you start talking to people who are experienced at buying pens, they ask you questions that you're not prepared to answer, like, what's the thickness of the plastic? Is there a grip? What kind of grip? Where? How do you create the design and the print on the grip? What's the kind of ink? Black? Well, there's 50 different kinds of black. What's the viscosity of, the, you know, there's so oh, wow. The things that yeah. might, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to help buy a pen. No, you're not. And and you don't know how to talk to the manufacturer of that pen. So standing between those two, and then you get an email of somebody else wants clothes and somebody else wants a box and somebody else. And I was scrambling, trying to sound like an expert on all these things. And I was like, this is a mess. I'm going to mess a bunch of people's stuff up and, and I don't know what I'm doing. So we looked at it all and anybody in any business can kind of take the same path, I guess. But I, we looked at it all and I said, okay, we've got to pick one thing that we can master that we can get really good at so that we can provide real value to people. And what is that one thing that we're going to narrow our focus to? And when I looked at it all, it seemed like we had the most demand. I had the most understanding for flexible packaging. That was the thing that made the most sense. And I also realized that like, if I work with one supplier for that, they can kind of make everything versus you know, maybe if you're making hard plastic containers, you have to have a mold for e the shape of every single container or jar or whatever you're making. So it's hard to work with just one supplier. Anyway, long story short, that made the most sense. So we narrowed it down to that, turned out to be a really great uh, decision. And we started selling a lot of packaging and things went really well. And then about three years in, I stopped and I realized, wait a minute, we're selling a lot of packaging here. But this is not the problem that I set out to solve. The problem that I originally set out to solve was it's too difficult and risky to source products from other countries, from China. That's still too difficult. And that problem still exists. Alibaba is still a dangerous place. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to know who to trust. It's hard to figure out the process of importing and shipping and all these things. It's difficult to do all of this. And it still is like... Maybe we're helping to solve it for packaging, but really all we've become is maybe another one of those guys that's like, we're going to get it in from the boat and then we're going to, mm -hmm. you know. You become we, part of the problem. You become part of the problem. We had more value add than that because we're helping people figure out what type of packaging and all these other things. But still, at the end of the day, we weren't solving any important problem. And I was not content with that because that's not a legacy that I feel like I can leave is like, what did you do with your like, well, I sold a lot of bags. So what? You know, it, it <laughs> wasn't or helping anything. And so I said, we still have to try to attack this problem. And then, and I can go on and on forever. I feel like I should stop and get some breath. And do you have any questions? <laughs> well, I know that, you know, and this might be where you were kind of leading to, but I know that you yeah. eventually sold that company. And I, I, you know, in talking to other business owners who sold their company, or at least thought about selling their company, a lot yeah. of their thought process is like, well, 
you know, this is my baby. This is something I set up. We had a certain mission. And like, if I sell it, is it going to continue on that mission? I've invested so much sweat equity into this as well as regular equity. You know, right. yes, you're going to make your money back. But also is when I look at this in five years, is it going to look like a completely different company? Like in, you know, going through this process of potentially selling the company. And obviously you did. Was there a little apprehension around what's going to happen to what I created? Not in the least bit. <laughs> not at all. And I'm not too surprised given your personality and given all the things that you had created before. So I, I didn't give a shit about that. <laughs> well, because I think I would have cared more if the company, if the mission of the company itself had more meaning, then maybe I would have cared. But that was not mm. a company with a mission that mattered to me. That was a company that sold products that delivered great value and amazing service to the customers and to the people who work there. And that's what I cared about. So when I was looking for somebody to buy the business, the number one criteria for me was that it was going to be somebody who was not an asshole, who was going to treat the clients right. And more importantly, was going to treat the, the team members right because I handpicked them carefully. We became family. They're the greatest, most hardworking, most trustworthy, honest people, the best people, some of the best people I could find, humanly find. And that's what I cared about. And that's what I did focus on. But in terms of what happens to the business, I mean, I want them to continue to have that opportunity. I want him to be successful because anytime I sell somebody something, I want them to get 10 times more value than the money they paid from me because that's another ethical thing that about me. I just, it's important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but that kind of like, you know, typical like, oh, my business, oh, my bit, not at all. My business, maybe <laughs> I don't think about it like that. So for me, that was really easy. Yeah, but at the same time, you, you did kind of in an adjacent way care enough about yeah the people that were working there. And, and obviously, like you still need to sell to the right partner who's going to do right by those employees, which it sounds oh, like, you know, you, you were able to. Yeah. 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 I care in the sense of like it matters and, 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 and kind of like, but not in the kind of emotional sense, you know, God. not in like the emotional, like, what if it doesn't, you know, wake up in the morning, like, oh, I don't get to check that email anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so now, well, so now as you then took this into creating Zipfox, which it sounds like, you know, you were figuring out, you figured out your niche and, and now kind of the value that you really bring and also not overextending yourself in the areas that maybe you don't have the expertise or don't necessarily have the bandwidth to focus on. Mm -hmm. How now did that become Zipfox and what you're doing now? Yeah. So, you know, there was an overlap between still building Hawk and selling Hawk and starting Zipfox. And that might have been another reason why I didn't really have much of a reaction to selling it is because I was, at that point, it was just a load off my shoulders. I was carrying two things and then I was like, okay, I can get one off and now I can put more dedication and, and attention to this, which is the reason I sold it. It was growing like 100% year over year. I could have just, you know, maybe tried to find some other way to keep it on the side or whatever, but I really just wanted to put all my attention into this. So yeah, again, that same kind of thought path of there needs to be, you know, a better product sourcing platform out there. That was important. It became much more important when the trade war started with China because we were importing all of this packaging from China. And so it hit us squarely. I remember I was actually... Um, I think they had raised the tariff to, or they, they had established like a 10% import tariff on everything coming from yep. China. And then I was on a vacation with my family in Italy and my partner was back here and he was watching the news about it, just the time difference. And he was telling me that they're considering moving it up to 25%. And then it was like, before you know it, boom, yeah, they're doing it. And I was like, no, I thought they were going to consider removing it. And we had containers on the water already. Um, these are 
products that were already priced out, payments already collected from customers, you know, we can't change the price on them. We have to eat that. Wow. And so 25% added to your cost on the containers, all this stuff coming across and there's nothing you can do. Um, that was difficult. So, so, and, and, and I was thinking, it's funny, even in that moment, I was thinking about our little business and how, you know, kind of devastating that was to us. And then I was like, but think about the people who are doing billions of dollars in business, hmm. and all that stuff coming across the water and they have to pay 25%. That's insane. Yep. Um, right. That's so crazy to think yeah. about. I never realized that. Yeah. Once it's on the water, like, yeah, it, it, you're not grandfathered in cause it's already shipped out. Like, no, it's still got to make it here. I mean, look, if you're the type of product business that puts things in the warehouse and then sells them on the shelf, you still have time to change your price. Mm-hmm. But if you're selling wholesale B2B and that thing is coming off of that ship and going straight to your customer and it's already priced out, there's nothing you can do. Or if you've got contract pricing or anything like that, there's nothing you can do. So, yeah, so it was, I'm sure it was more difficult for other people than it was for us. But for us, it wasn't fun. You know, we ate the cost and we kept moving. But like everybody else, we were like, okay, we've got to find an alternative. You know, we've got to find some supplier outside of China. And what I realized and what a lot of people probably realized in that moment is you go back to Alibaba and you're like, okay, let me see what I can find. And when you try to find a supplier outside of China on Alibaba, there you run into the wall and realize how limited it really is. Mm -hmm. So when you think about Alibaba, they build themselves as, and we typically think of them as a global product sourcing marketplace, because for us, if it's outside of the US, oh, it's global. You know, we just immediately... (laughs) But when you realize that it's really a China marketplace, because you can't even really find other Asian country suppliers on Alibaba, they are really narrowly focused on, uh, we've done some research on their site and really understand the statistics of it. But in most product categories, about 99% plus of the results that you see are going to be Chinese. Hmm. Um, and so it's, 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 uh, it's a Chinese marketplace. And so you realize the limitation there right away. And then you start going, oh, well, the next step is, I guess, go to Google. So you start Googling, you know, uh, flexible packaging supplier, Vietnam, India, you know, you start looking for things and, um, and, and it puts you in a really kind of sketchy place right away because you get these search results. You don't know who these companies are. It's just a company name. They're not used to fielding business that way. So when you go to their website, it's not set up for U.S. buyers that might be showing up there. It's in, it's in you know, other languages or very poorly, maybe even hard to find a contact or anything. So it's, and I was like, wow, that's crazy. So it wasn't very easy to fix. And then somehow, I still really don't know, but somehow, uh, I think because we had a customer who had done some stuff in, in Mexico, uh, but my mind went to that. I said, well, if this is this difficult to figure out, if it's not going to be easy, then I might as well just consider anything. Mm-hmm. And so the Mexico thing came back to mind. And I said, well, if I could find a supplier in Mexico, then I could deliver way faster to my customers. And that would save a lot of problems for me because the lead time from China to the U.S. is always an issue, especially with packaging. It's like really, you know, time sensitive. Mm-hmm. So. So I start thinking about that and I start going, well, you know, there's a free trade agreement. And there's super fast delivery times and the shipping costs are good and they've got skilled labor and they're on the same time zone. So I don't have to wait until midnight to talk to my suppliers. And there's a lot of reasons to do that. And if I ever have to go over there to visit my factory, well, I'd probably rather take a quick flight to Mexico (laughs) than have to take this long flight that I take out to China. So, okay, cool. Let me try to figure that out. And I just really fell in love with that idea. And the more I thought about it, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it needed to happen. And then I kind of had this thing and I'm not going to go on forever, but then I had this thing where I was like, how is that not already a thing? 
you know like if you think about that on a on a kind of a deeper level it's like ever since uh, i guess christopher columbus you know sailed looking for trade routes shorter <laughs> trade route, right? and he comes and he's like oh these are indians you know and uh and 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 but since then and prior we've been trying to establish these global trade lines and you would kind of think that the first thing that would have been done with the internet was like, hey, now we're all connected around the world. How can we all do business together? You would have thought that like a true global product sourcing trade marketplace would be the first thing that people would do with the internet. And so it's still strange to me that here we are 2023 and me and my little team are the ones building the first ever real global product sourcing marketplace, the first real global marketplace. So. So that's that's kind of just you know that's just the way the the whole idea came together and and I, and I like I said I just got really bought into it I really understood that it was not only necessary but urgent um, and as the trade war just continued to escalate and now we you know we have these geopolitical issues you don't know if China Russia what's all shaping up there you don't have to be some conspiracy theorist to think that something you know not good might happen next and so. You really want to have some diversity. I don't think this whole lumping up. So now we have the most suppliers on our platform. Um, and I can get into more about what Zipfox is. But we have so many suppliers in Mexico on our platform, the most out of any other platform um, on the Internet. And uh, But I don't think this clumping up of like any one country as a supply source is the solution. I think having diversity, having access. Um, and what really excites me about it is creating opportunities in all these other countries, allowing all these other countries who have manufacturing capabilities to access the global market, create jobs, create new millionaires, not just in China and the US and you know these three, four super countries, but all the manufacturing that exists in Central America, South America, Mexico, and Africa. There's countries in Africa that do manufacture, South Africa, Egypt. There are countries, and Egypt in particular has proximity to the EU, similar to how mm-hmm. Mexico has proximity to the US. So there's a lot of similar kind of parallel benefit there. And all these different trade lines and relationships that can be established and all the opportunities that, that creates around the world, that's what really excites me the most about what we're doing. Are there and you kind of touched on it more from a language perspective, but are there are there cultural nuances that you have to navigate as you're now working with these people in so many different countries? Mm. Yeah, so we're we're really kind of like we started our focus out. We have some factories in in, in Africa. We have uh, a couple in Asia, but we're really focused right now on building out this um, th- the supply in Mexico. And so it's not super diverse yet. That's where we're going next. So we're expanding okay. later this year in Central America, South America, and then and possibly like right away a few Asian countries. We're hiring for that right now. Um, and uh, and then some of the North African countries that have some solid manufacturing capabilities that'll come either later this year or at the beginning of next year. And then also Europe. I mean, there's some like, you know, Germany and Switzerland. They have their world renowned for some of their machining and precision manufacturing that they do. And so bringing all that online. But for right now, no, there really hasn't been uh, too much of an issue with language a little bit. I mean, anytime you have an international, you know, anything, there's going to be some language uh, barriers, but. Well, yeah, and I, I meant less so on the language and more so on like, you know, I feel like there's cultural nuances around how to work. And, and you know, sure. I, I think of like Europe in general, like a, a France, like, you know, after a certain hour, you're done working. Right. You know? And so, like, I think there's certain nuances that you have to either understand or you have to learn on the fly as you're trying to deal with these different folks. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And you're right about that. And that's actually part of the work that we're trying to do here. So, um, you know, when you think about China um, and, and that's kind of become a standard, they don't sleep. You know, they just don't like they just don't sleep. Like you could even if they just message you back to say, you know, I'll get back to you in the morning or something like that. They're like waking up out of their sleep. They get a, <laughs> like, I'll get back to you soon, friend. You know, like they just they're just. They're, they're, they're just workhorses. Even for, that, that's totally like you said, it's part of their culture. Even as kids, they go to school. I forget what it is. I don't want to misspeak here, but I think it's like 10 hours a day, six oh, wow. days a week or something. I have a good friend over there who's an English teacher and he gave me the opportunity when I was over there one time to teach an English class to his uh, students. And it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. But I was also just shocked about how much they go to school at such a young age, you know, like it's just instilled in them from a very young age to work hard and, and dedicate a lot of their time to being productive. Um, and that's much, much different from the American culture, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Latin culture, we're not, we're not as, I don't want to say as driven, but as, maybe as disciplined in that way. That's just not, you know, it's just not the way we operate. It's just cultural difference. But anyway, to your point, um, when you compare China to Mexico, there are definitely differences in that way. Um, but some of that is balanced out by the fact that we're on the same time zones. And then some of that we try to balance out through the platform. And so what we're actually hoping to do is not just aggregate and bring all these different buyers and suppliers around the world into one place, but to also create for the first time ever an international standard for how to do business and try to make some of those cultural, you know, work culture, uh, differences more kind of, I guess, obsolete, you know, by, by creating constants and standards, um, on the platform for how long you should reply to somebody, what means defective and what doesn't, what should be on an invoice or what should be on a quote. And we can do that by kind of creating these set forms and processes and standards on the site. So hopefully what we're doing aside from the language barriers, but hopefully what we're doing, um, is creating this constant way that everybody can understand what's fair and what's not fair. And that's what it's really about is what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's not fair. Um, because where people do things differently, inherently, they have different definitions of what's right, what's wrong. And it's not that mm-hmm. anybody's being misleading or, or dishonest. It's just that they do it differently. And this is what's normal to them while this is what's normal to you. And a lot of times when we're working with people in other countries in any capacity, that's where we end up butting heads is where we just don't see things the same way. You know? Yeah, that makes it's sense. Engine, it's just a different way of operating. Well, and especially because you're dealing with people in lots of different time zones and, and you're really building this up right now. Like, I feel like you must not get a lot of time to sleep. Like, how do you carve out time for yourself within all this, too? Because there, yeah, there's a lot of balance that you need to be able to create for yourself. Yeah, it's insane, man, that I've I don't know. Um, there's been times for sure where I have, um, you know, gone heavy and, and stay at the office until seven, eight at night. Like, I don't mind, like when I get real focused, I'll put in a 14 hour day, no problem. And like, I have to pull myself away and go home because I haven't eaten. Like I'll sit at my desk and I won't even go to the bathroom. I won't drink any water. I'm serious. Like I won't eat. Like I, when I get that plugged in, nothing else matters to me. I just want to keep going, going, going. But for the most part, with a few exceptions, uh, I try to get, I try to be done by five o'clock. You know, I try to be done by five, go home and cut it off. Um, and don't work from home. Don't be sitting staring at my phone a whole bunch. Um, and I'm o- I've almost always taken the weekends off. And no matter what's going on, I push it to Monday. 
just because okay. somebody told me this a long time ago and it really made sense to me is that you're kind of like never going to reach the bottom of the pile. No matter how much work you do, it never ends. So you have to just stop or else you'll never stop. And I've also learned through burnout. You know, you said you wanted to talk about some of the toll that it takes on you. Yep. With Hawk, there was a time where I was just burning it at both ends so hard that, you know, I hit the wall a few times, but one time in particular, I remember I was like, uh, you know, it's killing me. And my partner was like, dude, you got to take some time off. You know, you got to like take a day or whatever. And uh, even the weekends, it wasn't enough because the weekends aren't super, super relaxing because then on the weekends, I got stuff with the kids and all this. So it's just kind of like my <laughs> other job, you know, sometimes <laughs> push from doing this to doing that. And, uh, and, and, and I remember I was like, all right, I like to fish, you know? And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to this. They had this fishing, uh, convention, like fishing products, like lures and all this stuff. And, uh, they were doing it for a couple of days down at the Del Mar fair. And I go, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start taking some, I'm going to, I think what I said was I'm going to start doing half days on Wednesday. And then I'm going to start with going to this thing. I'm going to leave early. It's next Wednesday. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to hang out. I'm not going to worry about it. And I went down there and I was so, not for any one thing in particular, it's not that there was any one thing going on that I could put my finger on, but I was just so overwhelmed in general and so burnt out. I went in there, I walked through and as I start walking through, I can't even look at the stuff because I just feel like I'm crumbling inside. Mm. I walked straight through. There were three buildings and you could kind of walk through each one out to the back and then through the front of the next one. And I walked all the way through and I was just trying to get through it. And all the way back at the end, they had tables where there were, you know, lunch trucks or food trucks or whatever. And they had some tables back there. And I went and I tried to find the furthest table where nobody could see me. And I sat down, I put my head in my hands and I just started crying mm. and I put a ball in there. And I was just so exhausted. You know what I mean? I was just exhausted emotionally. And this lady that works there... She kind of came through like an employee entrance of the back gate. And so she kind of walked through back there. So she kind of messed up my little thing I had going on because I thought I was away from everybody. She came through the secret entrance and she ended up popping out right next to me. And she saw me. She was like an angel, man. You know, sometimes you feel like somebody just understands, you know, and, and I think about that moment all the time because I'm so happy about how she handled that. I did not want to talk. I didn't want to tell her what was going on. I didn't want to have a conversation. All she did was she looked at me and she said, it's going to be okay, baby. And she just kept walking. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed. And I sat there for a little while longer. And then I just walked straight back through those buildings, got in my car and left. You know, <laughs> I just kept going. And I've done that. So I, so I, so I say I've tried to kind of keep my limits, you know, my work-life balance as best as I could, but make no bones about it. I've hit that wall hard a few times, enough times to, uh, to know when it's coming to kind of pump my brakes a little bit and back up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's pretty extreme to, to get to a point where now like you, you were trying to do something for yourself in that moment and you, you, you literally didn't have the bandwidth even for that. Like that's, well, that's too. really hitting that wall. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like, you know, but part of it is a necessary evil. So you can yeah. overcorrect. You can take that idea and run too far because part of getting to where I am right now, if you put my workload and the things that I'm able to handle effortlessly at times today, if you put that on me 10 years ago, I would be crushed in day one, right? You expand your capacity mm -hmm. and your capability and your, and you know, so as you go, you kind of tap that wall lightly. You know, you push the envelope a little bit and it's like, it stresses you out and then all of a sudden it becomes the new normal, right? I'm sure you can relate. Oh, and yeah. then 
like, oh, I can handle this. And then you're going and it's all good. You're in your zone. It's almost like running. I don't know if you're a runner, but if you run and kind of hit that part where you could stride and you feel good and then you get exhausted a little bit again. And then, and then and the more you do that, you expand your capability, your ability yeah. to do more without getting burnt out. And so you kind of, you can't be shying away too much from hitting that wall. You got to hit it a little bit, but you just try not to hit it too hard. And I think the older you get, the wiser you get the more you start to identify when that's coming and you slow down a little bit instead of just hitting it a hundred miles an hour. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. There's, I think there's certain, I know for me, like there's certain uh, mental talk that I, I know I have when I'm getting close to that point, when I just uh, repeatedly in my head, I'm starting saying I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Well, I, like, th- that's when I know, okay, I'm starting to hit that wall. Or if I notice like my, my mood is different, you know, I can now see that, okay, I'm, I'm reaching that point. I need to dial it back a little bit. And so to your point, like, yeah, you build that capacity for yourself, but at the same time, you're learning lessons along the way of yeah. okay this is when I'm, I'm getting close to that wall and here's how i need to dial it back or you know take a step you know even if it's for a day or a few hours to kind of reset yourself a little bit and now reapproach you know the work that you're doing yeah yeah is that what normally helps you recharge is taking some time because there's been times where taking some time helps me and other times even taking a little bit of time doesn't really help because once i plug back in it's like nothing changed like what really helps you um i think to your point i think yeah just taking a step back and doing nothing doesn't always help because my mind is still racing and going crazy i think what helps me the most is physical activity so i love playing sports it's funny you were mentioning running so like running playing basketball playing football things that still need to keep me mentally engaged while i'm doing it but mentally engaged in a way that for me is fun it's a hobby it's something that i love and i've always been doing um but also i love going out in nature i love taking pictures and like that's my and taking pictures for me is also another way to stay engaged while I'm in nature. I'm not just walking around thinking about work, but now I'm looking at, you know, really appreciating the leaves, the colors. And I'm doing that because I'm now taking a picture, but that's also just for my own well-being at the same time. So I think those are for me, those, those ways to really kind of step back and, and recenter myself. I love that. Uh, and and I can relate a lot. Like I said, I like fishing, but sometimes, and it's kind of like, you know, playing, I like sports too, but I like fishing a lot. And it's like, sometimes it can be therapeutic but then there's other times where i'm so intensely focused on what i'm doing there that that's still a little bit taxing on my brain too right because i'm not exactly like zen you know i'm like focused on (laughs) and i'm like really trying to do it so that's not always as relaxing or recharging as i wish it would be but like the walk in nature anything like that that's really helpful in running like i've just recently kind of gotten more into running and that can be a good one because you can kind of be at peace with your thoughts and get your blood flowing and you're, you know, you're, you got some, uh, you know, you're taking in the nature and uh, especially you can find some good scenery to run around. So any of that stuff. But I think, I think those for me seem like the three things that you got to do is you got to take a break and do something, right? I think where yeah. people really find themselves in a hard place is where they can't find a basketball or a nature walk or anything to do because then there's just no balance. It's just all go to work and then let me try to take some time off, but they don't do anything valuable with that time that they are, that they're not working. Right. So agreed. And the last thing I'll say about the running too, that I just realized, I think another thing that I like about it is that a lot of times in work, if I'm really intensely in it, I sometimes, like I say, I suck at breathing. I, I kind of forget to really take deep breaths and really, and so running makes me have to take deep breaths so that I don't pass out while I'm, you know, running around. And so I think it just, it's a good practice for me when I get back to work to now be more mindful of how I'm breathing, how that's actually affecting my brain, affecting my body. 
have you run a marathon? You look like a marathon runner. <laughs> I have not, only because I heard it's bad on your knees. My knees are already bad enough from playing basketball all these years. So yeah, but yeah. Like, I love the concept of running a marathon. I've done like lots of those Spartan races and Tough Mudders. Like I'll do those obstacle course kind of races. But yeah, uh-huh. no, no real marathons for me just yet. I can tell you're in great shape. That's cool, man. Yeah, I ran my first 5K. Uh, like a month ago and I was making a big deal out of it. I did good though. I was proud nice. of myself. Yeah, I did it with my family and it was fun, but now I'm looking for the 10K and there it I, is. I work because the way I am, right? I get, I can't keep anything fucking simple. Like, nope. You no, know? you got to accomplish the next goal. I, I, I see it in you. I can't, I hate it. I actually <laughs> trust this guy uh on TikTok. I think his name's Andy Glaze and he runs ultras. Have you ever heard of an ultra? Oh, I've heard of the ultras. Yep. Those are intense. He just did one, uh, like I think it was last week, called Cocodona. It's 250 miles. And, and the day the day before it, he ran another one that was 100 miles. He ran 350 miles in one week. That can't be good on your body. <laughs> because it's, the guy who, the whole marathon concept came from a guy who literally died at the end. Like, so this is not, this is not a safe practice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know how he does it. But, uh, and then he took like a day to rest. And then his wife wanted to run the half marathon, just a little half 13 miles, you know, half marathon in Orange <laughs> County. So he comes and runs that with her the next day after. I'm like, this guy's nuts. Yeah, he is. Oh, I'm not training with him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, got their thing. So, yeah. Well, you know, I think we've touched on a little bit of it, but yeah, tell me some of the, the great things that have been going on, especially with, with ZipFox now. Like, you know, obviously yeah. you're still building, but yeah, tell me about some of those wins. Yeah, man. Um, I'm really excited because one of the notes that I put, it's still over here on a whiteboard by my desk, but one of the notes that I put down when I first got started is build the platform that you wish you would have had when you started. You know, I remember those early days being really nervous about sending money to people, getting burned many times. I got scammed for $20,000. I lost tons of customers. Oh yeah, I paid my dues for sure to figure it all out. It definitely was not a smooth path. Um, and there were some very simple things like, um, you know, more honest, uh, communication from the platform about who these suppliers were payment, basic payment protection that you could trust. There were some very simple things that could have helped me avoid a lot of those pitfalls. And so the first thing that I'm the most excited about is that we have built that we built the platform that I wished I had. It is safer. 99% of the suppliers there are manufacturers own. We're very, very critical about allowing any, um, distributors on there but in rare cases we will if we know that they're very well established in some industries you know the manufacturers don't like to sell directly they only work through distributors and so in those Mm -hmm. situations you kind of have to um and like i said before too we have the most suppliers in mexico uh more than any other platform out there the opportunities that we've already created for these guys you know one of the things that we're doing too that i'm super proud about is We're not just taking the manufacturers that exist in Mexico and bringing them on. We're also looking for manufacturers who always thought it was maybe too complicated to export to the U.S. And we're helping them figure out how to do that. So we're really like modernizing their businesses um, and trying to do that at scale where we're taking people who only serve the domestic market. And we're saying, if you want to grow your business, you can tap into the U S market and the global market. And it's not as hard as you thought it was. We have a team that can help you do that. And we do it for them for free. So we bring in the customs brokers and the freight forwarders and everybody that they need to get themselves set up to start exporting. And when they finally ship that first order to the U S it's a nice moment. You know, it's a really big deal because that's kind of, 
um, that's that's that first bit of evidence of the deeper meaning behind what we're trying to do here. Aside from just you know generating revenue and mm-hmm. helping people buy products, that's all nice. But we're really trying to create opportunity, and where I'll be really excited, like you said, we're still growing and we're pretty new. But when we when I start hearing about you know new factories being built, when we hear more about lots of jobs being created, and we know that we're directly related to that. That's going to be where I can pretty much hang my hat and say, you know, that's something I did in my life that meant something. Not that I haven't done anything, but that's one of those things that I'll think about on my deathbed that, hey, we did that, you know? Yeah, it's amazing to think that your business has, is helping create a better life for you. It's creating a better life for your clients and the distributors. Like it, it, everybody who gets to touch this ecosystem is is creating a better situation for themselves. And, and you're at the center of that. Well, not me, but the team. And it's well, really cool yeah. because yeah, I appreciate that, though. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, the team that we have, you know, our guys in Mexico and gals in Mexico, they're so dedicated, not just because, you know, we treat them with respect. We love them. We're a family. I'm I'm building the same thing that I built at Hawk. You know, it's the same thing. I look for people that are trustworthy, that are genuine, that have good work ethics, that are passionate, that are real people, honest people. I look for people that I would keep in my personal circle. That's the way that I pick people. I care more about that than their resume. And when you do that, and you handpick one and then another and then another and then some of those people start hiring and they have the same ethics and morals that you do it starts to create a culture you can't wait until you have a hundred people that some of them are shitty and some of them are cool and then say hey we need to have a meeting about culture (laughs) right so i'm really happy about that um but one of the reasons why they really care about what they're doing is because they can see the immediate impact on their local economy they want to help you know, stimulate the economy in their own country. And they know that this is a, a very new and, uh, you know, awesome opportunity to do that. And so it's meaningful work for them. It's not just a job. And that to me is another one of those really cool things because everybody should, if they don't already want to, but everybody should care to do meaningful work that's going to be gratifying for them and not just put numbers in computers and sell worthless bullshit, you know? Well, honestly, it sounds like you found that and I appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing and also expanding opportunities for everybody here. Uh, that's especially, you know, in the package, well, not just in the packaging, but in the distribution packaging side, like, you know, all that, that ecosystem there. Like, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, but also appreciate you bringing some of this knowledge to us, especially knowing, you know, the kind of journey you've been on creating companies since you were a kid uh, yeah. all the way up until now. I think there's a lot, you know, to take away from this. And I, again, I really appreciate you bringing it here to Entrepreneur Struggle. Right on. Yeah. And I don't think I mentioned it, but just to be clear, it's not just packaging on the yeah. platform. You can get anything, right? There's furniture, there's clothing, just make sure that's all in there. But yeah, but I appreciate the kind words, man. That means a lot. You know, we're trying to do something that matters to us and hopefully we can kind of help change the world a little bit, you know, for the better. Yeah. And let people know as well, you know, website and also social media, how can people stay updated with, you know, everything that you are doing? Absolutely. So if you want to ask the, the company a question uh, about using the site or anything like that, you can email info at zipfox.com. If you have a hard time finding a product, our team will actually help you find a specific product, find a supplier, even help negotiate prices. If you want to find us on social, it's at ZipFox Global. And if you want to email me, it's Rain, R-A-I-N-E at ZipFox.com. Thank you, Rain Madi, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about Rain's work by going to our show notes, which is also where you can get more information on how to stay up to date on everything Entrepreneur Struggle. We're doing monthly live events, so make sure you're following me on LinkedIn to learn more. Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson, Brittany Temple, and Mike DuBose. Thank you for the support from the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real. Mm